BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. You hear a lot about metabolism. You probably know it has something to do with weight loss. And even if you don't go in for the supposed hacks around speeding up your metabolism, you likely figure you can at least increase it by exercising more. This isn't actually the case, though. And my guest will sort through this and other misconceptions around metabolism on today's show. His name is Dr. Herman Ponser, and he's a professor of evolutionary anthropology and the author of Burn, New Research Blows the Lid Off How We Really Burn Calories, Lose Weight, and Stay Healthy. We begin our conversation with an overview of how metabolism powers everything your body does from thinking to moving to simply existing and how it uses the food you eat as the energy needed to fuel these processes. We then get into Herman's field research, which shows that increasing your physical activity doesn't actually increase the number of calories you burn but why it's still hugely important to exercise anyway. He also impacts whether certain kinds of foods are better for your metabolism, offers his recommendations on how to use diet to lose weight, and answers the common question as to whether it's true that your metabolism goes down as you age. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is burn. All right, Herman Ponser, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, so your field research has uncovered some I think, counterintuitive things about our metabolism, and we're going to dig into that today. But before we do, I think it would be helpful to do sort of a short metabolism 101 sure. class for our listeners, because I think people throw around that word metabolism a lot, like, well, got to speed yeah. up my metabolism, but they might not know exactly what that means. So what exactly is metabolism? And then um, we'll go from there. Sure, sure. So yeah, I think you're right. People kind of don't always, aren't always told the, the right thing. Your metabolism is all the work that your cells do all day. So you've got 37 trillion cells, give or take, and each of them is a tiny microscopic factory that's bringing in raw materials. That's the nutrients in the foods that we eat and turning them into various molecules, hormones, that kind of thing, burning them for energy. And all of that work that our cells do, each of those little factories do, that takes energy. And so metabolism is all of that. It's, it's all the work that that's happening. And since work requires energy, we can think about metabolism either as, you know, as the work itself. So people do focus on things like how molecules get changed around by cells. It's called metabolomics, the kind of products that they make. Or you can focus on the energy it takes to do that work. And that's what most people focus on in metabolism research like me. We measure all the work that our cells are doing by measuring the energy that our bodies burn. Gotcha. Okay. So metabolism is the measurement of energy our body is using to do what it needs to do. Breathe, heart beating, reproduce, get off the couch. Yeah. That's metabolism. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And most of it, you know, most of it, you're only kind of dimly aware of or, or not aware of at all. So for example, all of your, you know, every nerve cell in your body 
needs to keep a very precisely amount of negative charge inside of its cell relative to the outside of its cell, or else your nerves don't work. And so to do that, it's constantly pumping these ions, these sodium and potassium ions in and out to maintain that balance, maintain that negative charge. Your liver is constantly at work, detoxifying all the stuff you ate, helping break down nutrients. Your spleen, your, your immune system, all, you know, all of it, there's so many things that are happening. Your brain, your brain runs a 5K every day. Your brain runs, your, bur- your brain burns 300 kilocalories of energy every day. That's the equivalent of going on a five kilometer run. And you know, none of this, none of this you're aware of. You're only aware of the very small amount of energy that you spend relative proportionally that you spend on things like exercise. Yeah. So that's uh, I think an important point. So I think people, when people typically think about you know, speeding up their metabolism. And we'll, we'll talk about why that actually isn't a thing. They think, well, I just got to like exercise and move more and that, that's going to burn more calories. But you make the point like, no, most of your the calories you burn, it's just functioning, just sitting there existing, listening to this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if all you did is binge listen to the Art of Man podcast all day, you'd still burn about, you know, 70% of the energy that you would have burned in an active day. So, okay. So yeah, I think you break it down. There's like a chart, like you know, the kind of percentage of our calories that are, that we burn throughout a day that are geared towards just existing. And then there's movement. And then there's another one, another kind of criteria of how we burn calories. I think it's called NEAT, N-E-E-T. What is, oh, yeah. what is, what is NEAT? Well, so NEAT is this concept that, you know, you're kind of moving when you're not paying attention to it. So fidgeting, you know, standing up and walking over you know, to get a cup of coffee, that kind of stuff. What's called it, it stands for non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and it's yeah, it's a nice acronym for NEAT is a, is a nice acronym for that. And it's this idea that you, not only are you burning energy to move when you're paying attention to it and exercising, but you're also paying attention, you're also burning energy in these other ways as well. But there's even more than that, right? Because NEAT's not so okay. So NEAT was kind of a concept that people developed because they were having a hard time making the numbers add up. When they would try to understand how people are spending their energy, they would look at basal metabolic rate. That's your energy at rest at like you know six in the morning when your body's super calm and still, and you're at the kind of the the, the nadir. You're in the valley of your energy expenditure for the day. Your your organs are as quiet as they're going to be. You take basal metabolic rate. You take how much people exercise, you take how much energy it takes to digest food, you add those up and there's kind of missing calories because people are burning more calories than those three components would suggest. You add those up, you don't get the same numbers you get when you really measure it as a, as a real empirical measurement, it being total calories burned over 24 hours. And so people thought, well, there's, there's this neat stuff too. There's movement when we're not paying attention. And that's true. So we could add that in as well. And I would say there's other things as well that we don't always pay attention to that we need to think about as well, which is like the circadian fluctuations, the circadian rhythm of our energy expenditure, right? You're burning more energy in the middle of the day, especially when you're alert than you are at night while you're sleeping, right? So even without moving, just the act of being alert and awake and at the peak of your circadian metabolic cycle is going to be burning more energy than at your lowest point. So it's, it's, it can get new, we can get into the weeds, you know, we can get into kind of the nuanced weeds about how the body spends energy, but, but you're right. We can break it down to those components as well. But I think the big takeaway, the majority, like you said, the majority of our calories burned throughout the day is this BMR, this basal metabolic rate, just when we're at rest, 
thinking, breathing, heart beating, liver producing all the hormones that it does. That's <laughs> yeah. where most of our energy is geared towards. Okay. That's right. So let's talk about how our body takes the food we eat and converts that into energy. So the, basically when we consume food, you can categorize the, the nutrients in that food into three broad categories. They're called macronutrients. We got protein, carbs, and fats. And our body metabolizes these different macronutrients differently. Can you walk us through, you know, big picture? And we don't have to get into the Krebs cycle, sure. um, but big picture, like how, what are the difference between how our body takes these different macronutrients and turn them into energy so we can power our bodies? Yeah, sure. So we can start with, with carbs. So carbs include starches, they include sugars, and no matter whether it's a complex carbohydrate, like you get from a potato, or if it's a simple sugar, like you get from the sugar in your coffee, your body in your digestive tract breaks those down into very simple sugars, things like glucose and fructose. Glucose is the by far the major simple sugar. So that's why we talk about blood glucose levels, because that glucose gets absorbed into your blood. And then really it only has a, a couple places to go. It can go and get stored as glycogen, which is kind of a short-term savings account for glucose, because the glucose is really just all about energy. It can get turned into fat if your glycogen stores are already full, because glycogen, there's a limit to how much glycogen your muscles and liver can hold. Or it can get burned as energy. And so you're, that's what it's going to eventually end up happening is it's going to get burned as energy. But if you're not using it right now for energy, the glucose, you can store it as glycogen or fat. The fat that you eat will also get broken down into fatty acids, and those get stored as fat or burned. And then the proteins you eat get turned into to tissues, like muscle tissue. You're always you're, you're constantly cycling through muscle tissue because you break it down during the day and you build it back up at night. And your other tissues need protein as well. We're kind of protein robots walking around. We need a lot of protein to build our tissues. And then when proteins you know, get degraded, when, when tissues break down, your body will take those, will, will break those down into amino acids and burn those as well. But the main energy supply for your body is the glucose and the fat. And protein is mostly a, a building block. And there's, you know, we can get into the weeds there. Like you say, we can, there are, for example, there are sugars that help build your DNA. There are fats that help build your cell membrane. So things get used for different jobs, but those are the three big jobs. Gotcha. Okay. And so I think, okay, the big takeaway here is like, you literally are what you eat, right? When you eat carbs and fats, it's that stuff's in proteins, it's broken down and it's powering every part of your, of your existence. And the idea is, okay, if you're, you eat this stuff, you say you eat a pizza, use this example. If you eat a pizza, pizza, your body's going to uh, process that, break it down, you might use it right away for energy. If it doesn't need that energy right away, if it's glucose or carbs, it's going to store it as glycogen. Mm -hmm. If the glycogen stores are too full, well, then the body's like, okay, well, we're going to save that energy for later. We're going to turn that into fat. Mm -hmm. We're saying with fat, you eat fat, you either use it right away to power your body. If your body doesn't need it, then, then it will store it as as fat around your your belly. That the that's right. That's the basic. That's right. Okay, okay. So now that we have kind of this basic understanding of how metabolism works. Let's get into your research because, like I said, it's counterintuitive what you found. Because I think a common idea out there that people have is that if you move your body around a lot, you're going to burn more calories than someone who moves less. And that's exactly why people, when they say I'm going to start losing weight, what do they do? They sign up for the gym. They start exercising. Yeah. But what you've done with your field research as an anthropologist, you went to a group of hunter-gatherers uh, in Africa called the Hazda, and you measured their daily caloric expenditure. 
And the Hazda, they're hunter-gatherers, they're, they're moving around all the time. They have to move to eat, whether they're gathering mm-hmm. tubers or hunting uh, animals out in the wild. They've got to work a lot to get their food. And you figured, well, they probably burn a ton of calories because they're moving all the time. What did yeah. your research find? Yeah, that's right. So we did this project because, you know, humans evolved as, as hunter-gatherers, you know, so our species is homo sapiens, right? So we're in the, this genus homo. The genus homo is older than us. It's two and a half million years old. And for the last two and a half million years, the entirety of the genus homo's evolution, we've been hunting and gathering. And then our species homo sapiens shows up about 300,000 years ago. And we're just, a, a, you know, one more hunter gatherer group in a hunting and gathering genus. And so if you want to understand anything about how our bodies evolved or what our bodies are kind of built for, a hunting and gathering community is that's that's the best context you can have. Now, you know, they're not like, you know, they're not living in the past, they're not trapped in amber or anything like that. They're as modern humans as you and I are, but because they've held on culturally to this hunting and gathering lifestyle, it allows you to ask, like, well, how do our bodies work in a hunting and gathering lifestyle? So it's one of the best windows you'll you'll get into how our bodies were shaped for hunting and gathering. And like you say, they're incredibly physically active. We work with us, the group called the Hadza uh, in northern Tanzania. They get more physical activity in a day than most Americans get in a week. And so going into it, we thought, well, gosh, we, we have to understand how many calories they're burning because obviously it's going to be a lot different than you and me. And so we went there. We stayed uh, the first time we, I, I went there. I went for about two months living with them, measuring energy expenditures over the course of a week with this isotope tracking technique, which is really really good empirical objective measurement of calories burned per day. And you get it over about a week long period. So it's a really good look at daily energy expenditure. And yeah, we we got back to the States with our samples because you use urine samples to track this stuff. We had to get them analyzed by in a lab down at Baylor. And we got the numbers back and we're shocked because Hadza men and women were burning the same amount of energy <laughs> every day as people in the US and Europe and other industrialized countries. There was no difference. I mean, in fact, Hadza men and women are burning less energy every day, fewer calories every day than men and women in the West. But once you account for body size, they tend to be a bit shorter. So once you account for body size, it's indistinguishable. You cannot distinguish daily energy expenditures between us and them. It's really, really remarkable. Okay, and just to be, I want to I want to emphasize this point. Like they, on average, walk like five miles a day. I think it was like one. Oh, at least, the, yeah, that's yeah. the women. The men yeah. walk further. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, Western like me, I don't. I'm lucky if I get my ten thousand steps in. Uh, yeah, we a day. So that's a fun way to do it. They, the women get about thirteen thousand steps a day on average. You know, often with a kid on their back. Men get about nineteen thousand steps a day on on average. All right. So what's going on there? How is it that they're able to? burn the same amount of calories as us not so active Westerners. What's going yeah. on? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the big puzzle. And so we've been trying to figure that out for the last 10 years. Here's what we know. We know that there, there's nothing magic about the way that they're moving, right? So we've measured the energy cost of, of their walking. We've taken a system out there that allows us to, to measure the energy cost to walk. And it's the same as you and me. So there's nothing special about their muscles. They're not more efficient that way. Instead, what seems to be happening is the energy that they spend on activity is being, rather than kind of adding on top of everything else and and creating a higher total energy expenditure per day, the energy they're spending on on all that activity is taking away from other expenditures. So basically, they're they're reducing other expenditure and other aspects of their their bodies to make room 
for this really large amount of energy spent on daily physical activity. And like, where do you, have you been able to see where, you know, the body's yeah. taking away what's going on? Like what, where's, where's the body reducing caloric expenditure so we can, they can take into account that extra activity. <laughs> yeah. So this is, this has been the focus of research over the last few years. Here's what we know. And, and, and part of this is based on what we know from groups like the Hadza. And part of this is what we know from other people, like for example, athletes in the U S and elsewhere who are also really physically active and, and in sometimes are, are easier to study because we can get them into labs here. Here's what we know. When you're really physically active, you have lower levels of baseline inflammation. So things like C-reactive protein and the other stuff that's, that is your immune system kind of overreacting all the time. There's high levels of inflammation that Westerners tend to have. It's lower in people who are really physically active. So that's your immune system, basically dialing it back, spending less energy if you're really physically active. Reproductive hormones, testosterone levels, estrogen levels in, in men and women, respectively, are lower in groups like the Hadza and in, in athletes as well, um, endurance athletes as well. If you are a Hadza man or a Hadza woman, your, your reproductive hormone levels are going to be you know, maybe like 20% lower, 30% lower than an adult your age. There's an age effect, of course, as well with reproductive hormones. So we're accounting for age with that. And that's your reproductive system spending a little bit less energy on you know, uh, keeping its, itself up. And that's, that's going to save energy. Now, that doesn't mean, I want to be really clear, that doesn't mean there's fertility issues or anything like that, or that they're any less manly <laughs> the men because they have you know, slightly lower testosterone levels. Not, nothing like that, but just the reproductive system is just taking a little bit less energy per day and really physically active folks. And then the other big thing, and we don't have measurements of this with the Hadza, but we do it with other physically active groups and with athletes, stress levels and stress reaction, stress reactivity, right? So if I stress you out, I, I cost you on the street and you know, give your heart a bump and, and your epinephrine levels go up, your adrenaline levels go up, your cortisol levels go up. Or if I do that in the lab and I make you do mathematics in public, that's a really fun way to get people to get stressed out. Your heart rate will go up. Your cortisol levels go up, but if you're an athlete, or if we think if you're someone like the Hadza who's physically active all the time, that reaction will be not as as sharp, not as big, and will reduce. You know, you'll go back to baseline faster. You'll spend less energy on that stress reaction than if you are a, uh, a sedentary person who doesn't exercise a lot. So these are all the different various ways we think that the the body is able to kind of you know take energy away from other tasks in ways that actually are really healthy for us. We can talk about that too and, and make room for more physical activity. I guess to, to help people understand this, why this is going on, basically our body's regulation system for metabolism, it's all geared towards surviving and reproduction, right? And so, I, I, yeah, it makes sense. Like, you know, you talked about the reproductive hormones going down. Well, if you were facing extreme physical activity, and extreme caloric expenditure just to survive, right, to get food, your body's like, well, we're going to prioritize survival over reproduction a bit more. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to adjust things. So I mean, I guess if people just understand that your body's metabolizing energy to either to survive and reproduce, it's going to modify things to uh, further those goals. I guess survival is the first goal, and the reproduction is number two. Well, yeah. I mean, it depends. As some species that are short lived, it's all about reproduction. They don't they'll they'll throw away the survival piece. Humans, because we're long lived, we're evolved to be here for the long term and to get through the tough times. Yeah, that's right. We'll in a bad time, we'll, we'll focus more on the survival piece. Our bodies will. But you know, we see this kind of reproductive issue, reproductive effects in the Hadza. So a woman 
in a Hadza community, you know, they like big families. They don't use contraception typically, but a woman will still have a kid every uh, between two and, and three years, right? So that's without, you know, without any contraception. In the West, women who have a kid, you know, this year, even if that woman decides to breastfeed and is, is yeah, so she's nursing, if she doesn't use contraception, is likely to be pregnant again within a year, right? So it's much, the, the reproductive system is actually kind of, it's, it's dialed back a little bit in these really physically active groups. And by the way, that's probably more, more healthy that most guidelines for things like pregnancy say you should put more time between pregnancies, right? So, so that's one, you know, it's a, it's a good thing, <laughs> but it, you, you can see the impact of how the energy is being spent. And so what you guys have found, what your researchers found is that basically our bodies, all human bodies have this sort of constrained daily expenditures, like the kind of, a, there's a range, the kind of upper limit range of how many calories you can burn through a day. Yeah, that's right. So it's not just the hots. I want to be clear about that. We've done, you know, if you're a scientist and you find this really interesting result, the first thing you assume is that you're wrong. <laughs> so you got all that, you know, we've done all the work to try to make sure that that's a, a, a really strong state, a good result for the Hadza. And it is, you can use different techniques, different approaches, you get the same answer. So the Hadza data are solid. And then you want to replicate it. You want to make sure it's not just one society where you're seeing this or even one species. And so we've seen this in other human groups now. We've looked at other like farming and hunter-gatherer groups and, and mixed groups you see the same thing, same daily energy expenditures as Westerners, industrialized communities, even though they're much more physically active. We see this across species. So, you know, we've done this study where we looked at different species of primates, monkeys and apes and lemurs and lorises. In the monkeys in a zoo burn the same number, number of calories every day as monkeys in the wild, right? You can do this in a laboratory setting. You can get mice. You can take out their running wheel away from them for a while and then give it back. And, you know, they're less active and they're more active and you don't see any effect on their daily energy expenditure. So this is a really robust thing. Our bodies and probably all, all mammal species, maybe even bird species too, seem to be built to, to really try to regulate how many calories we're burning every day. So in humans, what's the constrained daily expenditure? Like what's the range? Well, it's going to be a function of your body size. Bigger people will okay. spend more energy than small people, but okay. women burn about 2,400 kilocalories a day. I'm saying kilocalories because we always say calories. That's actually not correct, but you can, you can just replace that with you know, capital C, big calories if you want to. But women burn about 2,400 kilocalories a day. Men burn about 3,000 kilocalories a day. And that can vary a little bit, again, with your body size. That's the biggest factor, but lifestyle has a really small effect on it. All right. So this is across. So about 3,000 calories, whether you're a Hadza or some guy in New York, mm-hmm. you're your body's probably burning about three. And this this is like total. So this includes, this is like a BMR. So that resting based yep. on metabolic rate and like your activity. Yep. It includes that. It includes the energy to digest your food. It includes whatever exercise you did. It includes, you know, taking that walk to go get a coffee. It includes the stress reaction from your boss throwing extra work at you at five o'clock, all that stuff. Okay. So the implication of this finding is that relying solely on exercise to lose weight is probably not an effective strategy because you know your body because you exercise to burn more calories than you're consuming. Yeah, but you're basically we've discovered our body's going to figure out a way to compensate for the increased physical activity. Yeah, uh, so that you stay inside your constrained daily expenditure. Yeah, there's there's two reasons that exercise ends up being a, a poor tool for weight loss. One is what we've been talking about. Your body will adjust, and you know you're adding. You think you're adding 300 calorie kilocalories a day. 
to your daily routine of exercise, but you're not really because that 300 kilocalories of exercise is at least partially being eaten up by adjustments other places. The other thing is that even if you are able to manage to bump your energy expenditure up a bit with exercise, um, especially in the short term, because it takes a while for the body to adjust, you're going to eat those gains because your body is also part, part of the system is your body is very well evolved to match energy intake with energy expenditure. And that also happens below our, our conscious thought. So if you are able to increase your metabolic rate by a bit, you're just going to eat those gains and you're going to end up right back where you are, where your energy intake matches your energy expenditure and you're not changing your weight at all. All right. So I'm sure people are listening to this like, well, this is depressing, but we're going to talk about why exercise <laughs> is still important. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. All right. So if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee, subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. And now back to the show. Okay, so people might hear this and think, okay, if I want to lose weight, then exercise doesn't do anything for me. What I need to do is reduce the number of calories I take in by a lot to lose yeah. weight. But that doesn't work either uh, and can even backfire sometimes. So what happens when we significantly reduce our caloric intake? Yeah, if you go on a crash diet, you know, really like cut the calories in half kind of thing. Then you're, this is another evolved survival response. Your body says, oh my gosh, we're, we're starving. There's no food in the world <laughs> and we got to get through this lean period. And so what it'll do is without your being aware of it, it will reduce your metabolic rate. So all those systems that you're not aware of, your body can take the foot off the gas and spend less energy on those. And all of a sudden, you know, you aren't burning as many calories as you were before. And not only do you feel miserable because you've, you've, you're starving yourself, but you're actually making it, your, your body is actually trying to frustrate those weight loss attempts, the weight loss effort, because it is reducing the energy expenditure that you had before. So it's actually, you know, that, that, that difference between the energy you're taking in and the energy you're burning gets smaller because your body's saying, oh my gosh, we're starving, turn the energy down. And, and so that we've seen this with, with uh, Biggest Losers contestants, yeah. right? Like they they go, like they're losing hundreds, like I, I think it's like 150 yeah. to like a, basically like a human. They lose a human off of their body, a full-grown yes. human. And then you do the follow-up, like, well, how do they do afterwards? And I think most of them gain the weight back. They almost all do. And that's really, it's sad because of how much effort that you know they put into it and how much it meant to them. But it's also kind of predictable because your body doesn't want to change weight right? For, you know, there have been you know, vertebrates. We're in the group of, of animals called vertebrates. We've been around for half a billion years. And for almost all that time, probably all of it, 
losing weight's been a really bad thing, right? You're losing weight, you're on your way to dying. And so there are all these evolved mechanisms not to lose weight, which is why it's actually the most important thing you can do for your health is to try to not get overweight in the first place. And that's, you know, that gets us into discussions about how we think about how we take care of our kids and how we take care of ourselves, especially in our early, you know, in our early years. But yeah, it's really hard to change once you do, once you're overweight. The best thing you can do is, you know, if you're looking at behavioral uh, strategies is to try to change your diet. But like you say, if you go too fast, too hard and too fast, too soon, then that can backfire uh, because your body responds to that by, again, reducing energy expenditure and, and frustrating that weight loss. All right. So yeah, the, the, you know, the metabolism, you can't outsmart the metabolism. Like there's no, it's going to figure things out. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest frustrations I have when I look at like online, you know, self-help, here's how you're going to take charge of your metabolism and boost your metabolism or whatever. All of this stuff, you know, it all makes people think that they're in charge of their metabolism, right? Which is completely not the case. Your metabolism is working behind the scenes. It's smarter than you. <laughs> and right. it, 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 uh, you know, it it adjusts to you. You you can't really push it around uh, in a way. It, it'll it'll manipulate things behind the scenes in ways that, that are going to frustrate what you're trying to do. Now, and I hope we're going to talk about this. You should still exercise, absolutely. And if you do want to try to lose weight with diet, there's some strategies you can take. But I think you know this idea that we're in the driver's seat, you know, revving our engines, our metabolic engines, in a sort of really simplistic way, and that's how we burn calories. I wish we could move away from that because it's just not. The science, right? So you can't speed up your metabolism. Like that's yeah, it's really hard to do. And and basically, yeah, you can't do it. Okay, so let's talk about this. So while exercise can't be the sole driver of weight loss, you make it very clear. You devote a whole chapter to this. Like that doesn't mean you shouldn't exercise. And you actually right. make the case that because of humans' unique metabolism, maybe we can talk about how it differs from the apes. Because of our unique metabolism, we actually it's really really important for us to move a lot. Why is that? Yeah, well, so, you know, like I said, we, we've been evolving as hunter-gatherers for two and a half million years. And hunting and gathering takes a lot of work, you know? And so our bodies are actually evolved to expect and require a lot of physical activity every day. It's what our organ, you know, as a, as a evolved organism, it's what we're evolved to do. And if we don't do it, we get sick. And so, you know, yeah, getting all those steps every day is really important. And ape, apes are lazy, right? I mean, I've done, I've done field work with apes. I've worked with apes in zoos. They're impressively lazy. <laughs> Getting 5,000 steps a day, maybe, you know, is kind of a typical day for, for an ape, even if you count up their climbing and all that stuff. And so, and they're just fine like that. They, they don't get sick from being like that. In fact, a chimpanzee in a zoo probably has less than 10% body fat. That's, that's a typical, that'd be typical for a chimpanzee in a zoo, even though they're just sitting around. And so we, we can't, do that. If we if we act, you know, on our ape-like impulses just to be lazy all day, yeah, we get real sick. Yeah, that 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 was really interesting to me is that apes in captivity don't really get fat. Like when they eat more food instead of, you know, turning that into body fat, apes just turn that into lean tissue. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Humans are it's another evolved piece of our, you know, of our physiology. We are evolved to put on fat really really easily. It probably goes hand in hand with having a faster metabolism. So we've actually evolved a faster metabolism than apes have. That allows us to have things like these big brains that we are so energetically expensive, and we have big fat babies more, and we have them more often than apes do. That takes a lot of energy. We are physically more active than apes, so all of this is like so we're a high energy ape, you know. And as a kind of a backup plan, we've also evolved this propensity to put on fat because if you're 
you're always burning a, a high level of energy. You know, if you have a high metabolic rate that you can't kind of turn down, you can't adjust much at all, as we've been talking about. Uh, you need to have a backup in case you know you have periods where there's not much food, and that's where our our body fat comes in. Right. So yeah, I guess, okay. Just to make sure I'm getting this right. So apes, they don't have to move around a lot to get their food. Right. So they have a slow metabolism, and there'd be no reason for them to put on body fat really because they would never have, they would probably wouldn't be long periods of time where they wouldn't go without food. It's like, well, I'll just grab this leaf here. Humans, uh, we have to hunt and gather to gather our foods. That requires a lot of energy. Yeah. And so we have to, uh, is there's, if there's instances where we, we don't have a lot of food available, our body's like, well, we need to have, we need to store body fat in case that ever happens so that we have the energy to walk and find tubers and gazelle again. Yeah, and reproduce and do and all reproduce. those things that, that we're built to do. Absolutely. Okay, so we have to move a lot because our body uh, uses mm-hmm. a lot of energy. You also highlight research that exercise, while it isn't, it isn't useful to lose weight, it's really important in maintaining weight loss. Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, that's a really interesting piece of this. So, you know, if you go on an exercise program tomorrow, yeah, you, you might lose a couple pounds over the course of a year, but that's not the big benefit of it. The big benefit in it is, is how it, it kind of you know, makes a lot of our systems more healthy. And if you, you know, if you're able to lose the weight with, with usually with diet as the big intervention, that exercise helps you keep it off. And we don't entirely know why. What we think is happening is that the exercise, the, when you exercise, your muscles send all these signals to your body, all these hormones and, and all, paracrines, all these things. So your body knows you're exercising. It affects every part of your body. And one of the things we think it helps do is regulate how hungry and how full we feel. So how much we eat. And so, you know, kind of exercise has this effect of keeping our hunger and fullness better regulated. So we we don't overeat. Once we've lost the weight, if you exercise, it helps you keep at that weight and not overeat and and, and gain all that weight back. So, yeah, I think one people, okay, I want to, there's, kind of, there's some interesting things going on here because our metabolism yeah. is, again, is weird. When we exercise more, we're going to eat more because we need more energy, right? But if, yeah. I think what you're seeing, saying here is that when you exercise, like there's a better connection between the calories you need and like your hunger levels, right? So it's like- Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. that's right. And once, and once you've lost the weight, the energy that you need is actually less, right? Because you've lost all that weight. And so if your body was try, just trying to match how much you need and how much you're taking in, You'll match that at that lower level, and and maintain the weight better. That that's what we think is going on. It's actually not entirely well understood why exercise is such a good tool for keeping weight off, but it absolutely is. That that's what all the data show. Okay, so overall, exercise it's going to help you lose a little weight, but it's really useful in helping you keep the weight off and maintaining your weight loss. And it's probably because it helps match your appetite to your actual caloric needs. You know, it's helping control those hunger signals. And something that's interesting with this research is that they found that sedentary people, like people who don't move hardly at all, they actually eat more than those who are active. And it's probably because, you know, their bodies have somehow become out of touch with how much food they actually need. And then something else, we talked about biggest loser contestants. Something else that's interesting with the research there is that with all the contestants, their metabolisms dropped after the show. And then it stayed low long-term. But among those who exercised, they're, they're, even though their metabolisms were low as well, they actually did the best in keeping the weight off. And again, it's probably because of the way exercise uh, regulates appetite. So yeah, exercise, 
plays a big role in weight maintenance. The other thing that it's doing, like right, all of the other adjustments it's doing, keeping your inflammation levels down, your reproductive hormones in a healthier place, your stress reactivity down, that is going to add years to your life, right? Those are all ways to avoid heart disease, avoid diabetes, the things that we're most likely to die from is by exercise. So, you know, thinking about exercise as a weight loss tool kind of misses the point. It's actually really good for all this other stuff that's going to keep you healthy and active and add not, not just years to your life, but like healthy, good, vital years to your life. Well, let's talk about diet because I think that's, you know, if that's the way we can lose weight, right? Just reducing yeah. calorie intake. But then there's people who have created diets based on how our body metabolizes different macronutrients. And I think the most popular one is like a low carb, high fat diet. Yeah. And I think the big idea is Gary Taub's idea is like, well, the reason why you get fat is insulin. And when you eat carbs, insulin levels spike and it drives, you know, the storage of carbs or fat as body fat. Mm-hmm. So you cut the carbs, you reduce the insulin, you're going to lose weight. What does your research reveal about, you know, diet and weight loss based on a macronutrient. Yeah, the, the carb idea. It's it's a beautiful idea. It just doesn't fit the evidence, unfortunately. So first of all, we can say, you know, a group like the Hadza, and there are lots of them still that are you know, farming and, and hunting and gathering and doing that kind of stuff. They eat a lot of carbs. It'll, in fact, they eat more carbs as part of their diet than um, you know than, than people in the US do. So if it were all about carbs, then folks like the Hadza should be incredibly obese. But of course, they're not. They're, they're you know, quite healthy weight uh, throughout their whole lives, and they don't ever gain weight in their middle and older age. They're just fine. And so if it were really just about carbs, then groups that eat a lot of carbs ought to be overweight. They're not. Secondly, when you do the, you know, the, the controlled laboratory studies and you put people on low-carb diets versus on you know, low-fat diets, you don't see any difference in weight loss outcomes. In fact, depending on the study, sometimes you see people do a little bit better on, on low fat. But that's you know the, the, the main outcome is that you just don't see any difference at all. If you cut calories by cutting carbs or you cut the calories by cutting fats, you get the same outcomes. And the third is if you do a study where you take people and you randomly assign them to a high-carb diet or sorry, so to, to a low-fat diet or low-carb diet, this has been done a few times now. There's no difference in outcomes. People, again, lose weight just as easily, just as well on low fat as they do on low carb diets. And so there's just really no, you know, the the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, which is the Gary Tabbs idea, it's been tested in a lot of different ways. And it's a beautiful idea. It's very elegant. It just doesn't work. (laughs) It just doesn't fit the data. Now, low carb diets work for a lot of people. That's a different question, right? The question is, is why are they working and how do they work? And the answer is they basically you're cutting calories. But that doesn't mean that the mechanism that's been proposed, this insulin-based mechanism is really what it's all about because that just doesn't bear out. All right. So again, you can't trick your, your body, your metabolism. Well, I mean, no, I think this is a different thing about tricking, right? So, okay. So the counter argument from the folks like Gary Tabs would be like, oh, well, you're saying all calories are the same. You're saying that it doesn't matter what you eat. Is that what you're saying? You know? And the answer is, well, no, no, we're not saying they, 100 kilocalories of broccoli is going to affect us differently and feel different than 100 kilocalories of potato chips, right? So in both those cases, those are very carb-heavy foods. And so the, the kinds of foods you eat matter, but all the evidence says that the way that you feel full on fewer calories, which is really the goal to lose weight on, on with diet, 
is that we have to think about the way that those calories affect our brains, right? So we talked about how your brain is really well adapted to match the calories in and the calories out, uh, to match our fullness and hunger to our weight. The way that you you kind of push that system to lose weight without feeling miserable is to find foods that make you feel full on fewer calories. So things like higher fiber foods can help, higher protein foods can help. That's where low-carb diets come in, by the way. You take a whole macronutrient group out and you give yourself foods that typically have a lot of protein in them and you feel better. You feel full on fewer calories. That's why low calories work for some people. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's what we're talking about here. So we're not saying that, you know, there's no, that, that foods don't have different effects, that kind of stuff. Of course they do. But do all diets work through the sort of the insulin pathway or do they work through manipulating the way our bodies feel, our brains feel? That seems to be the more likely mechanism. Yeah. We had a uh, Stephen Guinea on the podcast a while back ago and oh, he talked sure. about this, right? Like our, how our brain, how it feels about our food that we're eating. And yeah. one of the interesting takeaways I got from him was one thing you can do is just eat like less palatable food. Cause like palatable food, like you just want to eat a lot of it, right? Like we're talking about Doritos and cheeseburgers. Like, oh, I just want to keep, but it's like, if you look at the diet of like the Hadza, it's like the most boring thing there's no spices. It's just like, well, I'm going to eat a tuber. It's kind of burnt and like some zebra yeah. that's just gross. And so it's usually like, well, I'll eat enough to get the energy I need to do what I have to do, but I'm not going to. So one takeaway is just like eat a, instead of eating a potato chip, eat a baked potato. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's actually a great, you know, set of, most of it's anecdotal because nobody, no real nutritionist would ever recommend this diet. And I'm not to be clear, but there's great anecdotal evidence of people who just eat potatoes and lose, you know, lots of weight that way, you know, hundreds of pounds sometimes, because if all you eat is potatoes, guess what? You are sick of potatoes right. <laughs> well before you have overeaten your calories that day. And, and so that's one way to do it for sure. And I think that's what low carb is doing as well, right? You take a whole class of foods, uh, you know, off the menu and you know, how much steak can you eat? You know, how much spinach yeah. can you eat? You're, you're just, you're going to feel full before you overconsume. And, and that's, a, that's a great way to go for some people that works really well, but it's not the only way to go. And it's not because of this kind of carbohydrate insulin magic. I think it's much more about our brains than that. So I think another common idea people have about metabolism. So, okay. I guess, okay. We, we kind of debunked a lot of things, right? <laughs> Exercise isn't going to do much for you to, to lose weight diet, you know, basing a diet on a macronutrient probably not, it's not going to do anything for you. Right. I think another popular idea people have about metabolism is that as you get older, uh, it slows down. That's why oh, people yeah. when they're 50 or 60 got the, the, the belly. Is that true? Does our metabolism <laughs> slow down? You know, man, I'm in my 40s and I was really sure that one was true. And then um, we just recently did this big study. We, we took measurements from 6,400 and some people. And those are people from, you know, people who had just been born eight days old up to folks who are in their 90s. And what we did is we were able to, to use that big, big data set to measure how many calories people burn every uh, over the course of a day and ask how that changes over a lifespan. What we found was that your metabol metabolism is really steady and stable between about 20 years old and about 60. And so it, there's no slowdown in your 30s and 40s that we were able to, to detect at all. Yeah, that turns out to be another one of these myths. Um, so that, you know, that's not to say that it feels the same to be 44 as it does to be 24. I can attest to that, but it's not metabolism. It's not the energy burning that's changing. It's it's something else. It's about, you know, stress levels or hormone levels, that kind of thing. 
Uh, so, but it does start slowing down after 60? At 60, yeah. And that's really interesting because 60 is also kind of that inflection point where people start to, you know, people get in their 60s, 70s, 80s. That's when you see your risk of different, you know, different diseases pick up heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, other diseases that we associate with aging. That's those are when those really start to kick in is, is after 60. And we're seeing your metabolic rate decline too. What does that mean? That your cells are slowing down, right? That's what your metabolic rate, we, we started off by talking about what metabolism is. It's all your cells at work. When we see that metabolism is starting to slow down, well, that's telling us our cells are doing less work. And man, we would love to know exactly what's happening there. What's, what's changing that is, you know, is either promoting or just kind of signaling and telling us about these changes in how our cells work that seem to be related to the disease risk that we see picking up there. Because maybe, you know, maybe we could find a way to keep our, our cells burning more energy and keep them at a younger state. Maybe that would be protective against disease. I don't know. But it's a, yeah, something we need to look into next is, is figuring out exactly why that, why that decline happens. And is that telling us about healthy aging? I, I suspect it is, but we're going to have to have a, a more work to figure that out. Well, one idea that crossed my mind when you told me that at 60, it starts going down. That would make sense if we understand that metabolism is about survival and reproduction. If you're over 60, especially for women, like that's reproduction is off the table. Like your body doesn't need calories for reproduction. Yeah. So that's interesting, right? Because menopause typically happens when women are in their 40s, late 40s. So actually, from an evolutionary perspective, that last 15 years, if we go to 60, let's say, that's kind of hard to explain. And what that seems to be about is that the elders in our communities, and this is true in the Hadza, and this is also true here in the States, and it's true you know, historically and across cultures, folks who are in their later middle age are doing a lot of work and helping out their own kids and helping out the next generation. And that seems to be really important. So we have this evolved strategy to share and to help. It's one thing you, you cannot escape when you go to work with the Hadzi. They're always sharing. They're always helping each other out. And it's not just being nice. It, it is baked in to being a human, right? And I love that about kind of the way the doors that this kind of metabolism work opens up. You're like, oh my gosh, hunting and gathering, right? Like you, it's not just one or the other. You have to do it together. And that comes down to every, every celebration you've ever had, I bet, involves hanging out with other people and sharing stuff, sharing food, sharing birthday cake. Right, that's what's been so hard about all the social distancing with COVID is we're built to be social and together and sharing. Anyway, so you know that getting up to sixty actually gets you past your reproductive years for most of us, and that makes sense because again, it's really we need to work together. Maybe at sixty is around the time that most folks in hunting gathering communities, you know, mortality rates kind of kick in at a higher rate there, and that's, maybe that's kind of what we're evolved to get to at least sixty. And then the rest of that time, you're in the bonus if you're in a hunting and gathering group. That would fit the mortality data all right. So that's an interesting idea. But I do think you know it's clearly it's an evolved piece of our physiology. It's not a something we decide to do is to slow down at sixty. It's our, our cells are built to start doing that. All right. So what's a what's a person supposed to do with this information? All right. If someone's listening to this and they think, well, I, I need to lose some weight. How should this research guide their approach to losing weight? Yeah. Well, I think that a couple things. You got to start thinking about diet and exercise as two different tools for two different jobs, right? Diet is your best tool for weight loss. Exercise is your best tool for staying healthy, especially as you age. 
And there's some crossover there, but those are the, the, the main strengths of those two approaches. For diet, if you want to lose weight, focus on foods that make you feel full with fewer calories. And so we know what that looks like. I'm not you know, like I don't I don't study diet per se, but lots of people do. And if you look at that literature, people like Kevin Hall have shown stay away from processed foods, you know, the ultra processed foods, the Doritos, right? The sugary beverages. Not because of a carb or a fat or whatever, but just because the, the whole package is built, literally built, engineered to make you overeat, right? They they want you to overconsume. So yeah, you know, whole foods if you can do it, and and foods that are high in fiber or high in protein tend to make you feel full on less. And the other thing I hear a lot about from people who who are you know dietitians and work with people with obesity is try to find the parts of your day that you're eating and you're not even hungry, right? I mean, I know that for example, when I get home from work, I get the kids in bed, and I finally have you know a little bit of time to like breathe. I'll tell you what I do. I sit down on the couch, you know, catch up on work emails or watch TV or something like that, <clears throat> read a book, and I have a beer. Now, I don't need that beer. And if I was trying to lose weight, that'd be one of the first places I'd go is I would cut that beer out because I'm not hungry. I'm not even thirsty. If I was thirsty, I could have some water, right? You know what I mean? But that's just that's just calories that I'm just doing out of habit that don't have any nutritional impact on me at all other than, than the calories. So that's that's the focus you got to take if you want to lose weight. And, and no extreme calorie cutting because that was just no. I think that's a mistake. You know, I think cutting your calorie intake by a half, for example, or by a third, you know, yeah, you'll see some some effects faster, I suppose, maybe, but you'll also really mess up your meta- your metabolism. Will slow down. Your body will freak out. Uh, go into starvation mode. Cut. You know, reduce your expenditure, and there's no way to go. It's also unsustainable, right? You you will feel hungry. You'll feel miserable, and you know, that's, those feelings will win out and you'll, you'll go back to your old ways. You'll think, oh gosh, it didn't work. Well, it didn't work because, you know, in part because it wasn't sustainable to begin with. Well, Herman, this has been a great conversation. Is there someplace people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, yeah, I hope they'll check out the book. You can get that anywhere you buy books, your local bookstore or places like Amazon. You can check us out here at Duke University. I'm on the, you know, we've got a website here for the lab. You can find out what, what research we're into right now. And uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on you know, social media generally, but Twitter's where I'm most active at Herman Ponser. Fantastic. Well, Herman Ponser, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It was really, really fun. My guest today was Dr. Herman Ponser. He's the author of the book, Burn. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at our show notes at awim.is slash burn, where you find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who would think we get something out of it. As always, thanks for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you all to listen to when podcast, put what you've heard into action. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. 
by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.